1: From Brisbane, Australia, this is the FOMO Show. Cryptocurrency for the rest of us. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And this is a podcast where you'll hear about cryptocurrency in plain English. We'll help you stay across the crypto world so you don't get the fear of missing out.
2: You can visit us at FOMO.show on the net.
1: So, what are we talking about today, mate?
2: Well, we've got, uh, we've got a quick update on my uh, tax return portfolio. One of our viewers has got something pretty cool to share with us. Viewers.
1: <laughs> One of
2: our awesome listeners actually um, uh, put together a little link for us, which is really cool. We'll mm. share that with you shortly. Uh, we're going to touch on some news, inclu- including the uh, CryptoKitty fad, which is sweeping the blockchain.
1: We're going to interview Cade Morton of Aletheia, which is a decentralized scientific journal publishing platform. Awesome.
2: We'll be looking at uh, Bitcoin bans and uh, futures and what they mean.
1: We're going to get a call from uh, Dan Dan, the ICO man. He's got a new ICO to shill.
2: And our intrepid reporter Jordan Cronye is dropping in a little later to share the crypto news from Saudi Arabia. Now, before we get into it, um, is this podcast investment advice?
1: In a word, no. <laughs> uh, look, our aim on the podcast is to highlight great projects, technologies and cryptocurrencies. But, None of this should be taken as investment advice. It's essentially just making sure everyone's educated about what's out there. That's our goal. Um, And yeah, like we always say, don't get the fear of missing out. You know, half the battle is knowing, but nothing we say should be construed as investment advice.
2: Definitely, man. Yeah, we're just talking about the stuff that we love. We love crypto. That's what we love talking about. But, you know, just because we bought it doesn't mean you should.
1: If you've never bought crypto before... We've got a guide at FOMO.show slash 101, and it's got everything you need to know to get started. It's got how to buy, how to store, and how to send your first Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, so if you've never got into crypto before, that's the place to go. And um, if you sign up to Coinbase at FOMO.show slash Coinbase uh, and buy more than $100 US worth of uh, cryptocurrency, you and we will uh, get $10 US in free Bitcoin. So it's a great way of supporting the podcast, and um, you get something for yourself as well. So, um, yeah, again, check out the guide at FOMO.show slash
1: 101. And look, if you've got any questions about that, please feel free to drop us a tweet or an email at FOMOshow at ProtonMail.com.
2: In case you missed it, uh, a few episodes ago, um, I got a tax return from the government. They returned some stolen property and it's back with me. And I decided I was going to sink the whole lot into cryptocurrency. So I shared a list of all the coins I was going to pick up. And um, one of our listeners, uh, Jimmy, shout out to you. So, Jimmy put together uh, all the coins that I was looking at picking up into a crypto tracker. Um, and you can find that at FOMO.show slash tax return. Um, so far on this tracker, we've got a 10% return on investment, which is it's better than I would have got in the bank.
1: Mate, that's better than kicking the teeth.
2: Right, two years down the line. Let's see what happens. That's
1: right. So, yeah, look, it's actually really worth going to because it's a, it's a good little um, cross-section of how some of the investments have been going for the last couple of weeks, really, and it, mm. it'll give you an idea of what we're interested in. Again, not investment advice, mm. but it's something really to check out. So, yeah, thanks
2: to thanks to Jimmy for that, and you can find that at FOMO.show slash tax return.
1: So, Christmas is coming, mate. Uh, we were talking about this a little while ago. It's uh, It seems to be getting harder to work out what you're going to get people for Christmas. <laughs> Luckily, this year, I've decided at least that I'm going to get everyone... Fifty dollars worth of crypto in a paper wallet.
2: So if you're like uh, me and you buy Christmas presents on one or two days before Christmas, um, it's great because all you need is a printer to print out your paper wallet, and you can uh, yeah, you can send crypto to that wallet address and uh, make you know the gift that keeps on growing.
1: Yeah, and look, people often get other people's scratches and you know little lottery cards and all sorts of things like that. I mean, it's not the same, but it's something that we you could. Feasibly give someone, and there's a good chance that it's going to go up, and it's going to be worth more. Mm. And so, at the very least, if they don't do anything with it, there's a chance that in a year's time, at next Christmas, you can say, "Hey, that fifty dollars I gave you, guess how much it's worth now?" Yeah. You know, and they'll be like, "Oh, wow, like that's nuts." Or it could actually prompt them to check it out themselves, you know. And so, you could feasibly be getting someone, you know, new involved mm. in crypto by just giving them that because they're going to ask you. They're going to be like, "Well, what is it?" And you'll say, "Well, it's a paper wallet." It's got your key on it this is what your key means you know like it's a, yeah, it's actually going to be a really yeah, yeah. good conversation starter and you're giving them something that's kind of like giving them a voucher hmm. but it's got some some tangible value behind mm-hmm. it
2: so um, mum please act surprised when uh, <laughs> when you get it. everyone seems to be like the last couple of weeks like you 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 were at an event and everybody like you've been to a couple of events everybody is talking about bitcoin it doesn't matter where you go everyone seems to be asking you about bitcoin yeah man it's
1: weird like even 6 months ago i felt like i was some kind of pariah you know like it's like you you mention bitcoin or cryptocurrency and people were like what's that like <laughs> what's bitcoin what's the blockchain but now everyone's talking about it you know i i hear it several times a day i was at i was at a computer store yesterday picking up a modem and the guy in front of me was taking too long. It was really busy, and I was getting a little bit annoyed because he wasn't moving <laughs> on from the counter. But they were talking about the uh, recent Nice Hash hack. You know, he was like, "Oh yeah, I do this Nice Hash thing, and now I don't know whether I've my money's been hacked or not." And Bitcoin this, and Bitcoin that, and that's because it's, it's all over the news. Uh, everyone's
2: seeing on the news, and they call you up, and oh, I've seen some bitcoins uh, are going up, and you're like, "Yes, they are," and that's wild. I'm so excited.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it seems to be becoming part of the public consciousness. Um, it, this must have been how it felt for the people back in the day with the the internet.
2: Oh man! But, you know, you, but two months up. ago, you would have thought, oh, I'm a, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist. No one seems to believe <laughs> yeah. it. Like now, it's just it's going it's 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 rocketing.
1: It's good to see, too, man, because it's kind of this race. You know, it's this race to get to the point where there's adoption before the government's just say hey we're bringing out our own version of fiat currency and it's on a blockchain you know it's a it's a cryptocurrency and if they beat the decentralized ones to mm-hmm. that uh, then there's every chance that all the cryptos we know now may just you know plummet to zero but it's really good to see bitcoin becoming a part of the public consciousness now mm-hmm. because it means more and more people are going to hold it and the more people that hold it the, the harder it's going to be for any central organisation mm, to wind mm, that back.
2: Sharing the power out stops the uh, stops the abuse of power, doesn't it? That's right. Awesome. So, um, the news this week has been wild, man. Like, I literally googled it. Um, I sent it out a tweet afterwards, but it was just like, oh, Crypto Kitties have slowed the Ethereum. Like, have caused congestion on the Ethereum network. I'm just like, what is going? On? What's going on with Crypto Kitties, man?
1: Apparently it's meant to be that you collect and breed these digital cats, kind of like Tamagotchis or Digimon, I guess. And we were joking about that before because it's slowing down the network just by trading these different things. And we were saying like Tamagotchis or Digimon, you could trade them to each other. No worries at all. It wouldn't slow yeah, anything down yeah, 20 yeah, yeah. years ago.
2: You want to breed a digital cat, good luck to you. <laughs> that's
1: right. That's right. But, mate, it's it's really funny because there's, there's these, you know, immutable, unique cats that are now on the <laughs> blockchain and everyone's trading them on Ethereum and it's become a craze. But it, it's, it has legitimately slowed everything down so much. There's guys launching million-dollar ICOs right now going, we can't get any money into our ICO because everyone's trading... Damn kitties, <laughs> you know, And you've got to sit back and go, wow, like only in this space could uh, something so ridiculous happen. Um, there was
2: this dude on Reddit. Um, I think it was called Fosana. I say dude. Some, someone from Reddit said, "Um, a really good quote. Said, if one app makes Ethereum that much worse, how is Ethereum supposed to have thousands of apps running on its network? Mm. And that is a very good idea. Good point.
1: It's such a good point. And what we've talked about before. So for everyone that doesn't know, CryptoKittings is essentially a platform that allows people to trade these digital cats to each other on the Ethereum network. And you still have to process it like any other transaction. So the cats are backed by like little smart contracts and you, the ownership of a cat is tied to the blockchain and it's tied to your public key and your private key. And so then by trading that all around, it's kind of like trading a piece of currency but it's a digital cat, and as more and more people have been doing this, because it's it's kind of a novel way to interact mm-hmm. with the blockchain. Mm-hmm. And if you know if you if you want to teach your kids about the new technology, you can be like, well, just trade these kitties, and then mm-hmm. we can explain little bits of it as time goes on. It's a cool idea uh, mm-hmm. for that purpose, but. It, it, it really has brought Ethereum to its knees, you know. There was there was a point there where, uh, and I think even CryptoKitties has actually come out and said, look, you need to pay more gas now because mm. everyone else is paying more gas to try and get their transactions through. So, gas is like the the fee to use the Ethereum network? That's right, Yes. Yeah. So, if you go back to episode four, we did a blockchain basic segment on Ethereum and we talked about gas and how everything worked on Ethereum, but... Mate, it's just a bit ridiculous, you know. You're looking at this and you're going, "The market cap for this thing is 44 billion dollars. It's the second biggest cryptocurrency, and it's being brought to its knees by CryptoKitties."
2: Just let that sink in, man. Like, if there's any, mo- if there's any like motivation or impetus for for for. Making Ethereum work for for like more people, like scale. Mm. Yeah, this would be it.
1: Yeah, it, it really has brought home that Ethereum just isn't up to scratch. We were talking about this before. You know, if you've got a multi-million dollar house sale and you're relying on the Ethereum network for your smart contracts, and there's a whole bunch of smaller transactions going on in that, you may have set a certain gas limit, and stuff may just not be fulfilling. You know, and if you've built all your systems to interact with each other, like they're saying that you could do mm. on Ethereum, and there's a whole bunch of dependencies. This CryptoKitties thing could bring the whole thing crashing down because there's just not enough space there on the blocks, and the blocks aren't being mined quick enough. Mm. Um, so, I mean, for me, mate, it just reinforces. The alternatives, our, our whole, yeah, the alternatives, mm. and I mean, we, we've made no secret we're big fans of what EOS are doing. That I think we covered that in episode two of the podcast. You can go back there and listen to that as well. But it it really has opened the door, I think, for an EOS, uh, sorry, an Ethereum successor, mm. and people are really starting to talk about mm. it now because it just has brought it all home. Wow,
2: I think Dan Laram has just been building EOS this whole time, but it's literally it's aiming to solve all of these massive
1: scaling problems yep. and. So anyway, <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
2: yeah, another bit of news: there's an upcoming ICO from Chia, 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 Chia.
1: I thought it was Chai first. Hmm. Is Chia like a type of seed?
2: I don't know, but it's a super exciting. It's it's a really interesting idea. It's um it's being built by the, this guy called uh, Bram Cohen, who actually invented BitTorrent. Um, now. Yeah, which needs no further explanation. <laughs> but um they've got an ICO upcoming and um the what makes Chaya interesting is it's instead of using proof of work, like Bitcoin, which is where all these computers are using all their computer power to solve pointless maths equations to you know, just waste energy to do stuff, with um and then you've got other things like proof of stake where by holding your wallet online and to the network you're helping keep the network moving. Yep. This one is really interesting. It goes via something called proof of storage, which is a whole new type of protocol. And it basically makes use of empty space on your hard drive. And it basically, by proving that you have sort of storage capacity in your computer, that somehow keeps the network going. Random idea, mm. but um, it's I think it's their way of trying to pull it away from these big centralized authorities and sort of more towards a smaller mat- smaller.
1: Yeah, I think what everyone is trying to do at the moment, who isn't Bitcoin and some of the other bigger guys, is try and go back to the roots, this blockchain stuff. You know, proof of stake was an effort to do that. It was essentially saying, if you've got a Raspberry Pi, you can mine, you know, you can secure the network um, in a a meaningful way and you are able to contribute just as much as someone that has 20 graphics cards in their rig, you know, Mm. or has a warehouse full of ASICs. Uh, that, that it just it reduces the power requirement. Mm. And it seems like they're trying to do a similar thing and they're taking it a step further. They're just saying, look, everyone has spare hard drive space. Yeah. So as long as that hard drive space is open to the network and you can prove that it's there and it's open, mm. then the mathematical algorithm that backs that will... Secure the the network. Uh,
2: apparently, it's going to be in uh, for sale in twenty eighteen. So it's it's one to watch out on because it's Bram Cohen who yeah the BitTorrent inventor. The chances of him being able to get some publicity behind it and get some real influences into it, this thing could be could be oh, he could be onto something. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, one to watch out for. Uh, Chia.network. Ch- 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 dot network. Check out the link in the show notes, cool.
1: mate. So the European Central Bank put out a really interesting little. Order, I guess. Recently, didn't they?
2: Yeah, it basically just said that. Look, banks. I think it was the um, one of the members of the ECB's executive board, Eve um, uh He said banks need to implement instant payments as soon as possible and provide an alternative narrative to the ongoing public debate on the. Like, basically, this uh, the ECB is saying. Look, we got to embrace instant payments; otherwise, regular money won't beat Bitcoin. Mm. And that's the thing. What crypto is doing is it's it's just it's trying to out innovate. And I, I think the the central banks are trying to play catch up right now.
1: Yeah, mate. This this smacks of paranoia. That's what it really. It, it's essentially saying we need to get out ahead of this because otherwise our whole system of power and the way we exert our influence mm. over over all these countries is going to come crashing down, and people will. People will be able to, you know, we, we can't have people having control over their own that'd money. That would be a
2: crying oh, shame. That would be the
1: worst. You know, I mean, even the language here, you know, it says here to the ongoing public debate on the alleged innovation bought by, brought by virtual currency schemes. Mate, <laughs> there is nothing alleged about this, okay? The blockchain is an innovation. And the fact that they're calling it alleged innovation shows just how much they want to discredit this stuff, so they can rebrand it in, in their name and mm. then get out ahead of it, because I can guarantee you, behind the scenes they're saying, we need to harness this. this is an innovation, mm. and we need to make it work for mm. us before there's so much adoption that you know we can't put the genie back in the bottle. Mm. But
0: you, the you can't
2: believe
1: that and like but yeah, yeah. Because what this is basically doing is saying we're going to bank for ourselves now. When you come down to it, that's what cryptocurrency is. It's saying, look, yeah, we used to store our stuff in the bank. We used to store our gold in the bank until the banks lent all the gold to other people and then gave us paper. Mm. And then we used, use pe- we used to use the paper until the banks kept printing all the paper and the paper was worth less and less and less. And less. Mm. You can fool us once. It's kind of like that. you know? And finally, someone said, hey, look, there might be a better way here. Let's give it a shot, you know, and that's, that's been the Bitcoin experiment. That's been the cryptocurrency experiment. We're now 10 years in. The, the systems themselves have not had a significant hack. Like you look at Bitcoin, the only quote-unquote hacks that have occurred have been when people have built institutions on top of that, mm-hmm. whether it be exchanges or whether it be mining schemes mm-hmm. like with NiceHash. The system itself has never been compromised and that's awesome mate we've had 10 years and and it is very valuable now to try and hack bitcoin mm-hmm. quote unquote you know like you could make hundreds of millions of dollars you know if you found mm-hmm. even a small way to hack the bitcoin system itself no one's done it because it's secured by maths and i think at this point we have to start saying well this probably this might be a better system you know because it takes the control the, the potential for manipulation at that base level mm-hmm. you know at the currency production level away from centralized powers. Mm. But what it also does is it actually gives a pretty viable way for people to hold their money themselves again. And we haven't had that for a mm. fair long. You know, you, mm. you couldn't hold cash yourself. Mm. You know, you couldn't hide it under your bed because you were afraid, afraid of someone breaking well,
2: in. Owning gold in, in the US, it was outlawed for like some parts of the 20, 20th century.
1: Yeah, yeah. And look, I can guarantee you that not... that Some of that was, yeah, of course, to control the currency, but... Other parts of that would have just been the sheer public liability this Mm. gold stuff was, you know? Like, there would have been so many issues with people trying to steal it. Mm. Imagine if someone knew that you had 100 gold coins Mm. hidden somewhere in your house, Mm. and it was public knowledge. Like, there'd be attempts at break-ins all the time.
2: Now, if you want to do your part to destroy the central banking system that is ruining our planet, then just uh, tell people, you know, to uh, buy crypto. Mm. Meanwhile, here's some good news. The, uh, the White House says it's uh, monitoring the Bitcoin situation.
1: All right, and moving on, uh, Venezuela is actually going to create a national cryptocurrency.
2: Yeah, so it's uh, apparently going to be backed by reserves of Venezuelan oil, uh, gold, gas and diamond wealth.
1: Mate, isn't this what Jordan was talking about a few weeks ago? Oh...
2: Yikes! He's not going to be happy with that. Oh, we'll be catching up with him later, so you can look forward to that. Yikes! Uh, Matt mentioned it earlier, but um, there's another piece of news saying that hackers actually swiped uh, almost seventy million US dollars worth of um, uh, of Bitcoin of cryptocurrency after pummeling Nice Hash, uh, which is a cloud mining service, in a hack. Um, so yeah, basically, with with uh, cloud mining services, you basically give them money for you know six months or whatever, uh, and they you know they do all the mining for. Well, it, basically, all the mining gets done elsewhere, not on your computer, and you sort of get a, a percentage of the profit, um well,
1: some of the profit. I don't even fully. It's a bit of a pyramid scheme, mate. Like from what I've seen of it, it it's essentially like you give them your money to mine this stuff, mm-hmm. but then. They take that money and they use a certain percentage to pay themselves, pay for their equipment, mm. and then you get some income based on the percentage that you've paid. Mm. So, like, I get what they're doing, but I just wonder whether it would be more profitable to to spend that money elsewhere.
2: Mm. But yeah, there's a lot of people. I mean, um, because because it's you know relatively cheap to mine. Mm. Well, it's not cheap to mine a bitcoin, but it doesn't cost that. You know, you could spend you know three grand to mine a bitcoin, and that bitcoin is worth you know. Fourteen, well, twelve thousand, whatever, whatever the price is, you're making profit if you're mining on it. So people are getting really attracted to these services, and seventeen million dollars. So that's not just from one person's account; it's from, you know, people across NiceHash who are using this service, and they've been absolutely fleeced. Mm. And it, it just goes to show you got to be careful, especially when it's big money.
1: Yeah, mate, why not? You know, like there are still mining pools out there that will just take your hashing power, your own hashing power, and they'll reward you on that basis right. and you get paid out straight away or relatively soon mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and so for, for the guys using NiceHash, I just recommend checking out maybe buying your own equipment instead and just contributing to a mining pool yeah. because at the end of the day, I, I get the economy of scale argument, but you just don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You don't know whether you, your money is going to be fleeced again. Uh, mate, you found a really interesting article on 3D printing. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah. It's on, uh, it was from f- uh, phys.org, like from physics, phys- phys.org. Um, really cool. It's Basically, it's now possible to 3D print a Wi-Fi compatible device with uh, n- not even using like battery power or anything like that, wow. simply by... Uh, Basically, what it uses is it reflects the ambient sort of Wi-Fi and radio and all those sort of signals. Um, It can reflect those back to your router and give off a signal. So the idea is that, you know, you'd have physical motion. So, for example, pushing a button would cause something within that 3D printed button to move. That changes a reflective state, and that gives off a signal to your Wi-Fi router. So you could have—I think the idea was that you could um, pour some laundry soap, and by the time it's fully emptied, you know something in there in the three D printed thing switches, and it gives off a little signal to your Amazon account saying, look, order more washing up liquid."
1: whatever. So it's essentially like building the future smart home, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like you can—you could nearly make anything that you have in your house connected to the internet and give it an if-this-then-that function, mm, you know? Mm, so, mm. yeah, like if an item in your fridge is empty or nearing emptiness, mm. then add it to the shopping list or mm, send a, mm. send an inquiry or something breaks. You know, if something fails, you could just have the part arrive at your house or... Mm. Wow, it's a little bit scary though, isn't it? Yeah, because
2: it's, it's using this, it's a fantastic idea of where mm. it's just using the, it's reflecting signals that are already there, so it doesn't need batteries and stuff like that, and it's, I think it's called backscatter systems, but it's absolutely fascinating stuff, and there's going to be so much potential, mm. um, especially for like, yeah, giving off signals to other things, Yeah. Um, like it says, like removing a hammer from a weighted tool bench, or removing a hammer from a bench that suddenly, you know, maybe triggers a light in your ceiling, like one of your smart mm. lights or something like that. So there's so many possible things you can do with it. We're getting excited over these tiny things, but it's going to be something. The use case is going to be totally different oh, yeah, in I ten mean,
1: years. You could light down in your bed to go to sleep, and it could make sure that all your lights are off outside. Mm. It could make sure that your your doors are locked. Mm. All all the things that go through your head when you. Lie down in bed at night, and you go, "Oh crap! Have I done that? Have I done that? Have I done that?" It could just do them all.
2: I think you're onto something, though. I mean, like even just having a pressure plate under a bed, you get out of bed in the morning. Yep. You know, if you get out of bed, it sends off the signal, and if it's morning, you know, maybe it switches your lights on.
1: If you like Wallace and Gromit, you yeah. know when yeah. when. He, when he- <laughs> When he walks out and it's like, the trousers come out and then like the shirt comes on him and then like the toast like slides down into the toaster and it's like, morning grommet. And, like, and the dog just kind of looks at him and it's, like, it's the wrong trousers.
2: Bring on 2050, i say. Bring it on. So Jimmy sent a tweet in from uh, Roger Ver um, where Roger said, uh, Bitcoin's usefulness is a store of value comes as a secondary effect from its usefulness as a medium of exchange. If you destroy the medium of exchange, you destroy the store of value.
1: The tweet's really interesting because it says Bitcoin's usefulness as a store of value comes as secondary, a secondary effect from its usefulness as a medium of exchange. I get that. I get what he's saying. The problem is, is that you have to ask yourself, what is usefulness? Because what Roger is saying in that tweet is he's saying usefulness for him is... The medium of exchange. And the secondary usefulness for him is the store of value. But if you look at the market right now, what a lot of people would tell you the most useful thing about Bitcoin for them is that it's a great speculation tool mm. and it's going up. And so the most useful thing for them right now is the increase in price. So they're not they're not too worried about the, the medium of exchange because they're only buying it once. You know, they're not they're not trying to exchange it. They may eventually exchange it, but if you ask them, well, would you mind if in two years' time, when your Bitcoin has gone up by tens of thousands of dollars, would you mind if it takes you a day to exchange?
2: Well, the thing is, it's just like a house. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you're buying what, <clears throat> what is you know one day worth a house? Yep. Let's say, let's say Bitcoin, you know, jumps up to you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars at some point. That's enough to buy a house. Well, you don't. Like that sort of stuff takes ages to clear. So with that kind of scale of value, mm.
1: maybe it's maybe it's worth a little weight. Well, yeah. Well, what people would say with a house is the usefulness of a house is that you can live in it, not that you can transact in it. That's in true, it and I am
2: justifi- I, don't, I don't mean to justify ridiculously slow transaction fees because that's yeah. ridiculous. And yeah, there's no—I yeah. I don't know. I'm even trying to defend that. To be honest, with well,
1: you. I mean, but that house example again. Some people find it useful that you can live in a house other people find it useful that they can store their value in that house mm. you know usefulness is relative mm. to whatever people want to achieve and i get that Roger Ver saying that and look i agree with him mm. i think bitcoin is horrible as a medium of exchange i think it's come so far from where satoshi nakamoto thought that it should be at but what we need to realize i think uh, and we talked about this last time as well is that the the goalposts have shifted with Bitcoin, and people are deriving usefulness from Bitcoin in different ways now Mm. that they were in the past. Mm. Four years ago, yep, fine. Transaction, medium exchange, transaction fees, that was where people derived their usefulness from it. They said, it's really fast, it's really cheap, you can send it anywhere in the world. And people were like, wow, that's amazing. Mm. But you know what? Bitcoin is no longer anywhere near the best solution for that. Like we, we talk about PIVX, you know, it is really fast, you can send a transaction in less than a minute. Yep. It's really cheap. The transactions cost barely anything. You can send it around the world wherever you want, and the transaction will go there. And there's another extra added usefulness on top of that. It's that it's really inexpensive to run the network as well mm. because it's proof of stake. It's not proof of work. Sorry.
2: Well, as a side effect of all of this growth in Bitcoin <clears throat> demand recently... Getting in the headlines, everyone's getting into it. Now, a lot of people the first first coins they buy are through Coinbase. So yep. they got the choice of Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum. Like Ethereum's blocked, Bitcoin's blocked. Litecoin is shot the yeah. last week. I mean, I put you know, I initially put my tax return money in Litecoin while I was waiting to stick it elsewhere. Yeah. Litecoin has just shot up, you know, one hundred and fifty percent in the week. Mm. Like it's wild.
1: Mm. And then you have got to ask yourself, <laughs> what happens if Litecoin gets flopped, or Bitcoin Cash? Mm. You know, I mean, mm. they're saying that Bitcoin Cash can scale with eight meg, but it doesn't have anywhere the amount of transaction volume that Bitcoin has. It's all relative.
2: So you kind of had to be worried about like too much demand coming too soon to certain coins, or
1: I think so. And I think you've also got to look at how the systems are set up. I mean, Bitcoin's a ten-year-old tech, mate. You know, And I, I hear people all the time saying that they're dedicated to Bitcoin, they think it's the true ascendant chain, and they're going to try and fix the problem. But like what Roger's saying here, people will gravitate towards what is most useful for them. Mm. And Bitcoin is not useful as an instant means of transaction. It's, it's just like
2: Windows Vista, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it, it is. It's like Windows Vista and then Windows... XP and 7 and 10, you know, like a lot of different businesses are on different platforms and if you talk to them, normally they won't say, oh, it's because it's too difficult to upgrade in in and of itself. They'll normally say, well, I've got programs that won't run on 10 or uh, uh, in the other way they might say, oh, I've gone to 10 because it lets me do what I want to do way easier, Mm. you know. There's a lot of security fixes that aren't in the other ones that I want to... I want to make sure I have access to or whatever it is. Mm. This is the reason why we don't have monopolies in every single industry. You know, people derive usefulness and value different from different th- in different ways and different things. Like and, a
2: bottle of water is worth different to someone who's just finished a marathon than if you just stepped out of an air office.
1: Exactly, mate. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And, and this is where, you know, you hear these Bitcoin maximalists talk and they say, oh, it's the superior chain. It's the one true chain. And so the Bitcoin cash guys are just as, as guilty of it as well. They say, oh, well, we're the original vision and, you know, we want to be the real Bitcoin. Bitcoin, I don't, I don't think it's very useful at all. You know, it doesn't really serve my uses that I want from crypto. Mm. I'm interested in the adaptability and scalability of the tech, mm. and I'm interested in a method of exchange that can be quick fast and secure Mm. Um, and by secure I mean that the network is uh, secure from outside attack but also that it secures me personally as Mm. a person transacting on that chain which most of them don't you know they just flat out don't so my idea of usefulness is very different to someone else's Mm. and I think that's reflected in the amount of cryptocurrencies out there
2: but if you want a Lambo buy Bitcoin (laughs)
0: that's right
2: Cool. We're going to drop a call to our Dan. Dan, the ICO man. He's our New York based. Uh, what would you call him? He's a he's a trader. He's an investor. He's an entrepreneur. He's a speaker. He's a visionary.
1: He's a self-professed ICO expert. He's a shill. He's a basically a shill.
2: So, uh, yeah, don't buy anything he recommends. Just, just you know, that's fair warning. You've had the warning.
1: Let's give him a call. <laughs>
2: Hey Dan, uh, Joe from the Fomo Show here. How's things?
0: Hey, how you doing, Joe? Couldn't be better.
2: Uh, Sorry I didn't didn't get uh, back to your messages earlier this week. Um, You were saying something about a new ICO.
0: Yes, Joe, you've heard of crypto kitties. Well, this is nothing compared to blockchain bunnies. I'm telling you, Joe, these things are smoking hot. Who turned the oven up? Doesn't matter. We're cooking up the most adorable, marketable, tradable piece of crypto since Satoshi mined his first Bitcoin. This is a sure bet, Joe. Hell, I've got the North Pole buying millions of the stuff. Why travel around in a flying sled delivering inferior presents when you can give them what they really want from the comfort of the blockchain? They're dollars to donuts, Joe.
2: Uh, right, so um, uh, how are they different to uh, the Crypto Kitties?
0: Did you not hear me, Joe? Blockchain bunnies. What's the only thing more adorable than a little cat, Joe? A bunny, Joe, a bunny. I'm telling you, this is going to be huge, huge, huge. They'll write stories about this Joe, ballads for the ages. Don't be surprised when you see little blockchain bunnies hopping all over Times Square or taken up every slot in the Super Bowl halftime show. This is dynamite.
2: All right, Dan, how do we how do we get in?
0: Well, boy, have I got enough for your listeners, Joe. It's called. Mega early, pre-sale, visionary adopter access, Joe. This is the earliest anyone will get in as they're still nailing all the details down themselves. They literally have the guys over at Fiverr working on a convincing white paper as we speak. And the website. Well, Joe, it doesn't take much to change a WordPress template these days, I'll tell you that.
2: So uh, so what are we talking about here? Uh, 30%? 40%?
0: Joe, we're talking 65% off registered blockchain price. All your listeners have to do is contribute $100,000 or more and they'll get this juicy, never-to-be-repeated discount. Santa's in, Joe, the Easter Bunny practically masterminded this thing. Your listeners should have no hesitation throwing all their money at this too.
2: Wow, and, uh, and and what do they get for their investment apart from tokens?
0: Well, Joe, apart from a warm feeling in their heart, they're giving these creators at least one Lamborghini each. Gotta run, Joe! Blockchain bunnies, get in! In
2: our Cool Tools of the Week, one of our readers, Luke, shared a really interesting one with us, um... Tell us more about
0: that,
1: mate. Yeah, mate. So it's called CoinMarketCal. Market uh, So not Coin Market Cap. Coin Market It lets you see what events, ICOs, and announcements are coming up in the crypto space. You can find it at com. so
2: basically um it's it's user verified so if someone submits you know oh there's going to be a, a white paper out tomorrow if i check that out and i go oh that's definitely not true you can thumb it up and down a sort of true or false sort of thing so it's just assist- like it's it's quote unquote verified by users that could be gamed
0: of yeah
2: but, um you can set alerts so uh, you know if you know, an announcement comes out for a coin that I'm watching, like, you know, joining a new exchange mm. or um, things like that, um, you know, going uh, – if, if they're attending events near you, mm. you can set alerts and get that to your email, um,
1: which is really cool. It's it's really good, mate, because, I mean, one thing we've always lamented is we don't know when updates are coming out. We don't know when mm. things are launching. Mm. Um, it's just – decentralization is great, but you still need somewhere centralized that can pull the information mm. together. Like, we've talked about updating wallets before, you know, and Mm. this seems to be saying, look you can program all this yourself you can set what you want to be notified you can set what you don't want to be notified and we're all we're just going to put it in one place mm. yeah they're proposing some really interesting stuff so you can actually see like conferences and meetups in it you can see upcoming announcements for for different coins uh, white paper launches which is something i i, I like cuz i'm i'm that guy that clicks on the white paper link and, <laughs> and looks through it and and makes my judgement on that um but it also talks about listings on other exchanges, mm. which is a really interesting one for for you guys that are fledgling day traders, or you guys that are interested in on. Um on, you know What am I going to invest in next? Mm. Because it lets you know whether something that's been on just a small exchange is coming up for listing on a larger exchange.
2: And that's huge. That's absolutely huge. I mean, if if you've gone from just being on, you know, Yobit or – not that Yobit's not like not big, but, I mean, if you're, if you're just on one exchange and then suddenly you're like, I'm going to – like, this coin is moving to Kraken. Mm. Suddenly you're exposing yourself to way more people who can buy it, and it's mm. really cool. Mm. So, yeah, thanks, Luke, for sharing that. You can um, find it at coinmarketcal.com. Um, uh, the links in the show notes. Now um if you're uh, if you if you've come across any cool tools that, uh for crypto that you uh, in your travels do uh, send it to us by any kind of message whether it's email, FOMO, protonmail.com Twitter in our Slack, check out FOMO.show. you can get the links to get in touch with us from there but yeah, send them over to us. We'd love to see them. Cool.
1: Well, as you probably know, uh, if, you've, if you haven't if you have been living under a rock these last couple of weeks, it's been a massive couple of weeks of Bitcoin. And look, we try not to talk about the big capital B as much as we possibly can on the podcast just because everyone else covers it. And we're more interested in talking about the other stuff that people don't talk about. That's why we featured Aletheia. That's why we try and pick out other smaller projects just to highlight for you guys. But it's just been so big the last couple of weeks, <laughs> weeks mate we do kind of have to touch on it
2: bitcoin bans and bitcoin futures i mean wow so uh, joseph stiglitz who was uh, the former chief economist of the world bank um, he's called for a ban of a ban on bitcoin now if you see this guy talking he just seems like your grandfather type guy he seems like happy smiley nice guy but then he comes in he goes yeah we should actually we should actually ban bitcoin now this is the former chief economist of the world bank which is an organisation that puts countries into debt slavery, mm. and he's saying we should ban Bitcoin because you know this that. Oh, mate, I didn't even have a good reason to be honest. I I, I can't even remember.
1: Well, I mean, and that was the annoying part. It was it, it was why that news about the European Central Bank calling blockchain an alleged innovation and saying that they need to needed to get out ahead of it annoyed us so much because what you've got is these people who are a part of the establishment mm. and. Look, it's quite obvious that we're not the biggest fans of it, but the reality is is that these people really ought to know better. The World Bank, for example, if you go on their website and you look at what they claim to be ruled by, they talk about you know freeing the world, making the world a better place, you know giving more people access to to uh, good economic principles and mm. good economic money, and then you've got something which is essentially allowing a lot more people to have access to stable currencies, Mm. especially in the developing world. And we've Mm. talked about this before. What the blockchain and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies does is it gives people access to a currency that isn't inflationary but deflationary. Mm. And that's why Zimbabwe's... You know, people in Zimbabwe are buying so much of it because Mm. their currency is shot. The central bank and the World Bank hasn't done anything for their Mm. currency. Mm. So they're saying, we need to start looking elsewhere. And it's just... It's just tough, man. When you hear someone that was used to be at the head of that saying this stuff for no good reason, other than it's upsetting the apple cart.
2: Well, he says he said uh, it doesn't serve any socially useful function. Well, uh, Joseph, if you're listening, check out our Twitter. Yeah. Um, there was a great article. You were reading an article in uh, Hacker Noon. It was um, Bitcoin's final boss. Uh, so. Uh,
1: no yeah, it was It was authored by Dan Jeffries. And uh, look, I know Dan probably isn't listening, but Dan, if you're out there, shout out to you because when I first got into crypto, I read a lot of your stuff mm. and it's quite interesting. And look, while I don't agree with everything Dan's doing, he always has a really unique perspective on mm. things because he's an author. He's a novelist and okay. he does a few other different things. So he's he's kind of a bit of a jack of all trades. And he, he basically said, look, where we are right now, Bitcoin is really getting a lot of traction behind it. People are talking about it. There's Bitcoin futures coming online. But the big elephant in the room is how a government's going to react to this Mm. and how are bank's going to react to this. And we've seen little things here and there, but there hasn't really been any big moves one way or the other for cryptocurrency. So he talks about how Congress in America is looking to expand its money laundering law to target crypto by making it a crime to hide any wallets or crypto you own. Mm. They're expanding the civil asset forfeiture. And he actually touches on how if you fail to tell border agents under this new legislation that you're carrying $10,000 or more in crypto, you could spend 10 years in jail. So we're starting to see things really shift mm. and the government finally start to take notice of this. And
2: just a small one on the civil civil asset forfeiture. So this has been around in America for you know if you've been watching for the last few years, it's highway robbery, it's legalized robbery. Mm. The police, if you let's say you're driving, you work for a charity, you're taking your donations from you know in cash you just got 6 grand's worth of donations and you're just taking that to another town to cash it in your bank. So the police pull you over, let's say, you know, your hubcap, you know, so one of your lights is out. Police pull you over, see that cash, they can take it without any repercussions for them. They can take it and mm. it's theirs. Mm. It's legalized theft and that's super dangerous.
1: And there was a guy recently that had like $300,000 or something in his car, cash. Right. I was reading this article and and the police pulled him over for something pretty innocuous like yeah. that, found the cash, took it. $300,000 worth of cash. And it was a completely legitimate reason. And he said that. He said, look, this is why I had it. Um, I, can, I can verify why yeah. I had it. Mm-hmm. I can show all that. P- crickets. That nothing like, from the police. Yeah, yeah. They said, look, no, it's been forfeited. Yep. And there's nothing you can do. And, and it unfortunately, into- the, the currency, it, it's owned by the Reserve Bank. You may think it's yours, but as long as it's got the the seal of the government on it,
2: Federal Reserve banknotes to right. be trusted,
1: and it's not just limited to America. Like in mm. Australia, that there's a, a an article I saw recently that had come from our government, essentially saying that they wanted to put chips in the hundred dollar notes, so they could track where all the hundred dollar notes are and make sure that they're not being hoarded somewhere. Oh, and because there were these stories of elderly people. Yeah. Just keeping all their money in cash and not putting it in the banks, and the way the article was worded, it made it sound like it was this horrible crime to yeah. to take your cash and like put it somewhere that wasn't a bank and save it. You know, like heaven forbid. So they said, "Oh, look, it's 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 tying up the currency. There's not enough in circulation, so we don't want people just hoarding their cash. So we're going to chip it, so we know where where it is." That's wild, man. So
2: all it takes, so I guess, would be a satellite going overhead. Point a beam at it, fry up your notes. There they are.
1: Yeah, and look, that's where we're at, and that's why crypto is such a revolution. And Dan says this in the article. He says crypto is a path to self-sovereignty and control of the money you earned, and that's a dangerous thing. It's going to be really interesting watching how this all develops, mm. but it's it's quite clear from at least some of the government rhetoric in certain countries that uh, they view this as as not a good idea. But at the same time, you know, you look at somewhere like Japan. And uh, and they're very forward thinking, and they've said we're going to legalize Bitcoin. So we're going to come out and actually take an active step and mm-hmm. say clarify that it is definitely legal. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, they're not requiring anyone to turn over their private keys or mm. declare anything. Right. They're just saying, no, it's it's your money. You can do what you want with it. So be very cautious crossing borders
2: with your <laughs> any any kind of access to your your cryptocurrency. Just mm. if you're going on holiday, you know. Either leave it at home, leave it somewhere secure, but don't whatever happens don't like don't let it fall into other people's hands. That is right. last thing you want to do is be locked in a room and have someone demanding your passwords from you
1: yeah so the other big thing uh, this last couple of weeks has been the Bitcoin futures, which have just gone online as far I think I checked a little bit earlier today, and they have just gone online. Right. What are Bitcoin futures well?
2: Um, A futures contract, um, in a nutshell, it's a legal agreement that you make with somebody else, which basically, if you could secure a price to buy or sell um, Bitcoins at a specified point in future. So, for example, I could have a deal with Matt where I say, look, I'm going to buy your Bitcoin in two months from now for uh, 15,000 US dollars. So, it doesn't matter if the price in two months from now is $20,000 or $10,000, Matt has to... I, I have to buy it off Matt for 15000 Right. If that's what I agreed on.
1: So, essentially, you're making a bet with me that it's going to be cheaper for you to secure this deal now yeah, yep. than it is to buy Bitcoin in two months. Yeah.
2: So, it's sort of... Um, uh it's it's locking in a price yeah uh, it's removing the uncertainty in the future mm-hmm. so for example if you're a bitcoin miner let's say you're you know producing you know five six bitcoins a day or whatever and you, you're looking to get get a guaranteed price for these bitcoins in the future mm. you could look at a futures exchange and actually um you could actually cite like uh, have a futures contract which says look i'm going to sell them for this price then yeah now if the price is higher than that um, at the time, you lose money because you, if you 'd sold it on the open market two months from now, you could have made more money, yeah, but it gives certainty in price right um, so you can either offer to buy at a certain price at a certain date in the future or you can offer to sell at a certain point in the future. yeah, so the long and short of it is no pun intended, regardless of the price, you have a set price which you 're going to buy or sell in a certain amount of time in the future so that locks in the price for everybody and um, it gives some sort of certainty in a transaction so there are three different types of users that can use it if if you're hedging so that is if you're producing Bitcoin it can mean that you're getting predictable prices Mm. in the future so you're hedging your bets Mm. by having certain pricing for it um, the second group is speculators. So you can make money off the price going up or down. So if, if you think you know where the price is going to move better than the market, mm. then you have the opportunity to make some money speculating on whether the price will go up or
1: down. Right. So speculating. Yes. Essentially, you're you're, you're saying that you're going to make money off the price going up and down. So mm. you're putting in a bet that the market's going to go one way yep. and you're trying to profit off the off getting someone to lock in at the other way.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
1: so so if you think the market's going to go down yep. and you get someone to lock in, like, buying your Bitcoin at 20K and you reckon it's going to go down to 12K pretty soon, mm-hmm. then you're going to profit when everyone else is trying to sell at a lower price. Yeah.
2: So that means, sort of like, you're getting them to lock in at a price that you think is you've got at the better end of the deal.
1: Mm. And then when the where the funny business starts coming in is that all of this is public. So everyone can see where these where these bets are being placed and where things are trending. And I think in a
2: sense they the uh, some of the some of the proponents of futures are saying that actually helps uh, in, like if from an economic point of view it's helping keep the market sort of balancing itself out. Yeah. Um, you know so that it doesn't you know, almost reducing volatility.
1: But then, where things start to get really murky is when you start talking about insider trading and people having access to information that other people don't have. Yeah,
2: so this is a, uh, an area that would be trickier to get away with. But let's say you know someone who works at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yep. You hear in two weeks from now, Bitcoin's going to be regulated and they're going to announce it. The price is going to move then. But that that's where futures contracts would come in. You know, if I if I was you know minded to uh, break the law like that you'd make a huge amount of money because some people are going to think that's ridiculous the price will never drop to that price but you're saying hmm well
1: right okay i will buy them all at this price so if you wanted to let's say you're a bad person yeah, yeah, let's yeah. say you're a really bad person yeah. and you want to acquire yourself a lot more bitcoin and you have ac- you have access or control of certain media companies or you you know you you have a lot of people that read your material or something mm. and you put out some news you know saying that something like bitcoin is going to be regulated mm. you know it's not but you put that you put that news out there before you put that news out you go short on bitcoin and so you lock a whole bunch of people into buying bitcoin at a high price and then you release the news the price, price plummets and you get to cash in on all those contracts. That would be a way that if you're a bad person, you could...
2: Difference between the market price and the price of the futures contract. Yeah. It's, it's kind of wild. So, there are dangers here. So, it's not necessarily for the everyday investor. Mm. Now, um, the way that with futures contracts works is you actually need to store a percentage of the contract value in your account, I believe. Right. Um, so, this is what they call margin. Now... Um for most sort of futures contracts like grain or gold or things like that you know you you you're looking at about 15-20% that you actually need to have of the contract value I think it is right whereas with bitcoin it's, they're showing it's much riskier because you've got to have 35%
1: plus okay um and that's to make sure you you're good for yeah, what you're saying yeah, you're yeah, yeah 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 exactly
2: so now bear in mind if you need 35% of the of the contract value then if the price of Bitcoin goes up, you need to actually top up the amount that you've got in there. Right. So it could be could get very expensive. So this is more designed for sort of yeah um, uh, the the bigger businesses. Now you can really get stung because they like offering the everyday trader investor. They like offering you leverage, mm. where they say, "Look, we can make your we can make your five hundred dollars." We can make you pretend that that's actually, you know, $50,000. So you'd make the same sort of profit on that, but you'd make the same loss as well. Yeah. So margin, leverage, mm, uh, unless you know what you're doing, avoid it. We'd say, you know, stay away from playing with fire. Cool. Yeah. So in our crypto of the week, we just like to talk about a project that we've come across that Seems really interesting, and we thought we'd share it with you. So, um, this week we're talking about INS, um, which is de- which is a decentralized groceries ICO.
1: Yes, the way it's come about, essentially, the grocery market at the moment in most of the world is dominated now by the retailers, and the premise they come from is essentially that it wasn't always this way. So, manufacturers used to sell directly to consumers. So, you know, you had farmers markets where the farmers would come. You had brewers, they'd sell you their their beer and, and ale to you directly. Uh, and you'd have butchers who, you know, take the meat and sell it to you directly as well. Now, the convenience of supermarkets really changed that. And more and more, we've seen most of the manufacturers' goods concentrated in these supermarkets and everyone's basically trained to go there to get mm. most of their stuff. But what... INS is essentially asking: Is what if you could keep that convenience but cut out the middleman? Mm. And so they've essentially said, "Why don't we decentralize groceries?"
2: That's a big. That's a bit. That's a big statement to make. <laughs> it isn't it? Is. So you you see it in the news quite frequently. You know, the retailers are always treating the manufacturers really badly.
1: Mm, yeah. So the retailers have a huge market share, and so what that means is they've got a lot of market clout, they've got lots of profits and as time's gone on, the manufacturers have become increasingly dependent on them Mm. to market their products because if you can't get your products in one of the big supermarkets, if you're most types of manufacturers these days of any any groceries, you're not going to be able to sell to most of the population. So, your market is essentially, there's these couple of gatekeepers you know, and and they can really dictate the terms to you. And mm-hmm. look, mate, from my personal experience, I've seen it firsthand, I'm from a farm and, um, and we, you know, our, our farm dealt in veggies, mainly vegetables. We had mm-hmm. some beef as well. And over time, it got worse and worse and worse. You know, you became more and more beholden to these retailers mm-hmm. and they would exercise more clout in their pricing. Mm-hmm. So where you used to have maybe a 50% you 'd see your price reflected fifty percent in the store, so you know you might sell it for a dollar and then you'd see it in the store for two dollars it 's now more like you 'll sell it for fifty cents mm. and you 'll see it in the store for two dollars and While there's no real reason for that on the retailer' side, the reason that it was sold for a dollar originally is because that was to keep a certain level of profitability mm. for the the farmers who are the manufacturers, whereas now a lot of farmers have either had to shut down or really run that ragged edge of profitability mm. because their margins have decreased so much as these big grocery companies have mm. flexed their muscles more.
2: And then price wars between big supermarkets, the farmer loses.
1: That's right. That, that, these these guys are keeping their margins. Don't ever think if you're seeing sales that they're they're losing out. They're not. Mm. They're keeping their margins and they're squeezing their manufacturers because they can say, well, look, if you don't like it. You can try selling it somewhere else. And where
2: else are you going to sell all that stuff to exactly? That's right. So
1: there is a big, big problem with centralization Mm. here. It's all concentrated in a couple of spots.
2: So how does does INS fit into this?
1: Yeah, so INS is essentially saying that the consumers are going to choose what they want to buy Mm. and buy it directly from the manufacturers. So imagine having two companies uh, market you their product directly. So let's say... Uh, for the sake of argument, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Let's say you come to the market with no assumptions whatsoever. You're just like, look, I just want a good cola. Tell me why I should buy yours. Right this way, sir. (laughs) (laughs) On INS, these companies would actually have to try and convince you why you should buy their product. So that could be their product description. That could be a person that's there to answer your questions. They might have a live chat, you know, and they say... You type a message to each of them, why should I buy your products? And you could have the Coke rep say, well, we've got a better taste. And Pepsi says, oh, well, we've got Pepsi Max, which is less sugar.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then you can ask questions from each of them and then, you know, you make your choice based on that. And what INS is essentially proposing is saying, well, why only have Coke and Pepsi? Why not have everyone? Why not bring LA Ice in, you know, and give them... Just as much market space as Coca Cola, and mm. let the, a smaller market, retailer come in and say, "You should buy our product, and this is why you should buy it." And you know, maybe they have, might have a better response rate. You know, maybe mm. Coke doesn't want to employ anyone to answer the questions, but on INS, this small cola company employs a few people to actually answer questions and you know tell people why they should buy their product. And over time, that may mean that they might actually get more customers.
2: So how does how does this um, the whole platform operate?
1: Yeah, so it runs on smart contracts, mate. So INS token is the currency on the platform, and they're they're proposing to run it on Ethereum at the moment, which may or may not work out for them. We'll see how that goes. But
2: <laughs> confirm your grocery deliveries in two weeks <laughs> <Yes>. from today.
1: <laughs> Sorry, there's too many crypto kitties being traded on this blockchain at the moment. Watch you out to we buy have to be <laughs> Bundle CryptoKitties with your grocery request, and Ooh, you'll get fifty percent off. Yeah,
2: squeeze it all in one transaction. There you go. Yeah,
1: <laughs> maybe the most successful retailers will be the ones partnering with CryptoKitties and selling CryptoKitties with their products. You heard it here first. There you go.
2: Um, so, how do you pay for your groceries on INS?
1: Yeah, so you, you, they're, they're proposing that they have that you'll have the ability to pay with any crypto, yeah. and the price is going to be set by the manufacturer. So. There's no real markup. there will be a network markup, which is they're proposing, will be a one percent network fee, oh, okay. but that's still a lot less than the markup you get with grocery retailers, which can be, mm. like we were talking about, seventy-five to one hundred percent sometimes, you know, or more, mm. in certain cases. So it will really uh, their their goal is to bring the cost of groceries down by about thirty percent. But wow. I wouldn't be surprised to see if it's more, to be honest.
2: Mm. So it, it does seem to cut out the middle amount, but how do you get the product? Like, how does it get to you?
1: Yeah, this is the really interesting part of it, and its it, I don't think it's been dealt with well enough in their white paper. Mm-hmm. They've talked about it, but I, I think it, it needs more exploring. Right. And look, I get that it's in the ICO stage, but for me, as someone that may want to invest in something, I really want to know this. They've proposed fulfillment centers, which essentially means that someone has a warehouse somewhere and you pay the fulfillment center to first take possession of those goods from the manufacturer and then deliver those goods to where you are. So, essentially, the manufacturer sends the products to the fulfillment center once the orders come in. And look, I'd say INS would surely hand them back around having to be lumping a lot of them up together, a lot of people's orders together mm. and sending them all in one because mm. that, that would make sense. Uh, and then the fulfillment center will get the orders and bundle everything together and then send it to the consumer.
2: That does really sort of bring out, like, just just straight off the bat there, like, if this is groceries, I don't know how fresh they're talking here. Mm. Things go off real fast.
1: Yeah, they do, mate. And look, from personal experience, because I've grown up in this world where, Mm. you know, farming and, and vegetables and how they get to the consumers, it's... Man, it's expensive. Like you need big cool rooms because you've got a lot of big vegetables. You know, you got mm-hmm. cabbages, you've got cauliflowers, all sorts of things like that, and they need a lot of space. So yeah, there's a there's a need with a lot of this stuff to store it somewhere because you essentially have to get the produce from the paddock into a truck and then send send it to somewhere that's then going to send it on to the consumers. Okay, so at the moment, what happens is people load the fruit and vegetables onto their trucks, mm-hmm. then they take it into the the markets which have which are essentially places with huge cool rooms and they've got agents there that then on sell their produce at a significant mm. um, commission rate mm. to the retailers mm. and the retailers will normally come and haggle and and get the produce and then take it onto their stores and that's how that works and then or if you are selling directly to a retailer they will have their own big storerooms mm. and they'll either come pick it up from your farm or you'll have to drive it there and then mm. load it there. But either way, you have to have somewhere to store it and then you need to have somewhere to manage it. And if you don't move that produce on in two or three days, stuff can start going off really quick. As you know, you know when you keep your veggies in your fridge, they only stay good for a certain amount of time before they go off. Mm. So these fulfillment centers are going to be very, very, very involved. And... Mm. I just don't see how they're proposing to to manage this. And mm. I think they really need to be saying, look, mm. someone's going to have to step up and take this on.
2: Yeah, because it does seem that someone's going to have to fit, foot the bill for some of this. And you know, like a 1% network fee or whatever, that probably goes to the network or something. But I mean, someone's got to foot the bill for delivery, moving it, storing it. That's going to go somewhere. That's right. They're cutting people out, but which, is, which is good in many ways. Yeah. But at the same time, there's still serious...
1: Yeah, look, I I think it's a lot more involved than what they're making it out to be. You go on the website and it's very nice and friendly and it's, we're going to do this. But, mate, like a lot of this stuff, they're going to have to automate it and they're going to have to really work on that automation. And Mm. this stuff is hard to automate. That's why there are so many middlemen in this industry because Mm. there are some very specific skills needed for each step in the process. I can see how they could get there. You know, If you could build a system where you had trucks that, that went to the different places and and, and, and and everything worked smoothly. The farmers loaded the stuff thrown into the trucks. Mm-hmm. The trucks then went around and picked whatever they could fit up and then went on to the distribution center and they took it off. And each, each time one was taken off, it was scanned and put into a ledger on a blockchain. And then the next day, you know, you had machines that moved it all around and packed it into where it needed to be and then... You know, other conveyor belts that pulled it all. Like, a, you can see how it could work yep. if you automated enough and had enough contract, smart contracts, or programming going through it all. But man, like that's that's really involved. You have to, someone has to pay for that. And what they're proposing here is that the consumer will pay, and I think that's fair. But it may not work out as cheap as they're saying it mm. will when you add in all those costs. And that's the trade-off.
2: So you're saying it's a little idealistic at the moment,
1: and I think it's a little bit idealistic at the moment. I've I've read through their white paper as normal, um, and <laughs> it, look, it's just really light on, man.
2: Because I mean, sorry to interrupt, but you, yeah. you you just see with like with retail things. I mean, like um, mm. knowing people who do commercial beekeeping, there's a different process with bee, with honey as yep. there is with you know vegetables and fruit. Yeah. I mean, if in honey, you've got to turn it from this massive vat full of money mm. into putting that in jars. Yep. So <laughs> someone's gonna do that.
1: Someone's gotta do that, man. And there are people around that can do that. That's true, yeah. But the the big concern, like I've I've talked about those concerns, but the biggest concern I see is that this industry is set up and there is so much money made in this industry and it's very, very aggressive. For example, if you're a farmer in this industry, I don't know what it's like in a lot of people's country, but here in Australia, if you're a farmer and you even, for example, want some dockets, want like a receipt for how much the agents are selling your produce for at one of these markets, you're not allowed to see that. You know, it's very, it's very much like, no, you, you can't see receipts. We tell you what we sell it for and there's nothing you can do about that. And if you make any noises and say, no, no, I want to know that you're actually only taking the amount that you want. Like any other industry, most industries, at least you know how much is, you know, commissions being earned and you can see the stats. If you ask for that in this industry, you get shut out. You cannot sell your produce. They say, oh, sorry, we can't stock you anymore. And then you'll go somewhere else and they'll say, oh, what's your name again? And you'll tell them your name. and say, oh, sorry, we can't stock you anymore either. It's very. It's a little bit like a mafia. All mm. these guys talk to each other. They're all. They all know they're making filthy money, and they don't want it to change. Yeah, those and vegetable
2: cartel agents. They're driving nice cars.
1: They. They are. Like, they, they are. live in the
2: nicer houses than the farmers. Do they do everything except produce the food?
1: That's, ex- and do that's anything exactly useful. right. The retailers and the and the middlemen. Um, so it's a really noble thing what they're trying to do. Cut it out but that hasn't been dealt with in the white paper either because mm-hmm. at the end of the day you're going to have to have a, a fair few people stick their neck out and say we're going to take this on and they will probably be burning bridges with a lot of the the current stuff mm-hmm. you know if you're like if you're a manufacturer and you say oh, we're going to support this new decentralized platform and the two big supermarkets go oh are you well Sorry, we don't have any room on our shelves for your produce anymore. Mm. All of a sudden, you've lost most of your market to try this really unsure and unfounded thing that may not even work. Yikes! Yeah,
2: the Fomo show, uh, agronomy and <laughs> agriculture news for the rest of
1: us—just wet blankets. They—they <laughs> they have said that they've got manufacturers interested in this, and 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 don't get us wrong. Like, I think manufacturers would be really interested in this. Like, if they could. St- stop the stranglehold that yeah. retailers have over them. I think they'd be on board and there are a lot of big manufacturers out there that could you know, could potentially support this. And if and if the retailers don't really recognize it as a threat, you know, it could just be seen as another retailer that they're mm. supporting for now. So that is the advantage of it. And yeah, like you say, you know, if if a big if a few big manufacturers get on it, then that is going to lend it a lot of legitimacy. And yeah, mate. Look, it's, it's a really ambitious project. I think it's worth a look. I'd definitely check out the link in the show notes and read the white paper, make a decision for yourself. I'm not convinced, but I, I love the idea. And I don't want to bash it too much because it's a really, really noble goal for them to do, to try and take take out the retailer middleman. I think it's I think if they can achieve it, it will be amazing. For everyone. I think everyone's going to benefit except the retailers mm. <laughs> and mm. the agents. But mm. like the consumer and the manufacturer. Yeah, um, because ultimately it's just like if it
2: benefits both of those, great.
1: Well, they're the people producing the real value. You know, The consumers are paying the money. The manufacturers are producing the product.
2: Put the profits where they belong.
1: That's right. All the retailers and the agents are doing is just getting the product from one place to another. So yeah, no. check out INS. Like As far as ICOs go, there's definitely been more application for this one. And I can see how it would really make a difference having something like this on a blockchain. INS.world.
2: Oh, hang on, mate. Uh, we got a call.
1: Oh, we got a call coming in. Give us a second. Hello? Oh, yes, yes, hello. How's it, my bro? Oh, Jordan, yeah, yeah, great, mate. Um, More importantly, how are you doing? I mean, um, did you see the news about Venezuela's national cryptocurrency?
3: I saw the Reuters notification pop up on my phone last week and I've gotten my Venezuelan legal team on the case as, as, I mean, as you know, and as the FOMO listeners know, I created this currency eh? I taught it, everything it knows, I raised it as my own child, history in the making And Jordan Cronier doesn't get any credit, not one iota, Ah. Eh?
1: Wait, you've contacted Venezuelan lawyers?
3: Uh, yes, but uh, uh, there's not a lot I can say due to the uh, the ongoing legal process. Eh? But uh, I can tell you that uh, we're using every available legal route to rectify the situation. Credit must be given where credit is due. Eh? In, in fact, I actually found the lawyers uh, on this uh, fantastic website called uh, Craigslist. Uh, you might have heard of it. Uh, apparently, it's the place to find Venezuelan lawyers.
1: Right, so you found the lawyers on Craigslist. Jordan, um, what did they ask from you?
3: Well, all I actually needed to do was uh, send a copy of my passport and uh, my driving license and uh, send them my $4,000 uh, $4, deposit via App Store gift card. And uh, now we're well on our way to uh, to uh, exacting revenge, huh? Eh?
1: So Craigslist, App Store gift cards. Jordan, do... look, just, just let us know how that goes, Jordan. All right, how's things going in Saudi Arabia anyway? Oh, fantastic news. Absolutely fantastic.
3: I've got a new opportunity on the way. I thought you should know about it right now. Uh, Do you remember uh, a couple of months ago in Saudi Arabia, they were the first country to make a a robot a a citizen of Saudi Arabia?
1: Yeah, I, I do remember that, Jordan. They said the robot was called Sophia or something, wasn't it?
3: Exactly, mate. Well... Actually, I was chatting with Mohammed bin Salman. We were having a conversation, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS as I call him. And uh, I gave him a brilliant idea, right? I figured if a robot can... Why not also make a Bitcoin a citizen of Saudi Arabia? Huh? Genius! It's genius. The uh, the Bitcoin would even get a vote in elections there too, and become an active player inside the democracy. I thought you know this, it's a win win situation. Mohammed loves the idea. This is this is progress for the free crypto around the world, huh?
1: Right. So how will Bitcoin vote in the Saudi Arabian democracy, Jordan?
3: Oh, well, Matt, I believe MBS has set aside the room in his famous for Bitcoin and he he anticipates that Bitcoin will will support everything he demands, uh, I I mean uh, uh, proposes to the democracy of Saudi Arabia.
1: Okay, Jordan, but Bitcoin is just an entry on a a blockchain, like a ledger, isn't it? Not here in Saudi Arabia, Matt, uh, not here in Saudi. Here, it is whatever
3: His Majesty wants it to be. You're always talking about adoption, Matt. This is a good step. More uses, more potential for Bitcoin and crypto in general, eh?
1: Right, well, it's, I mean, it certainly sounds that way, Jordan, I guess. Um, well, we are so lucky to have you as a guest as ever, Jordan. Oh, you're too kind, of mate. Uh, anyway, I've got to go. I'm
3: so thirsty, man. I've been trying to find a pub for the last three hours. I'm so thirsty. I'm going to go out and ask this policeman over here, see if he knows anything, eh?
0: Oh, wait, Jordan, that's probably not the best...
2: So this is the section of the podcast, Decentralize Your Life. Um, each episode, we're looking at a project that takes a centralized concept and it makes it decentralized. And when we say decentralized, we mean it's, it's, it's something that isn't just controlled by one company. And typically, it's free from censorship. It gives governance to the users. It's not subject to any individual laws. And it's peer-to-peer. Today, we're going to be speaking to Cade Morton. By by day, he works as a senior security consultant, helping large organizations understand and manage the risk associated with their IT systems. So that's a big, big sort of task there. But um, And by night, he's a, he's a member of the Berlin-based think tank Blockchain for Science. He's a speaker on tech, culture and security issues, and he's building Aletheia, uh, a decentralized open access publishing platform for scientific research, which we're going to get into a little more. Uh, you can find the website at alethea foundation.io. Um Kate, firstly, is that is that how I pronounce Alethea? It
4: is, to the best of my knowledge. So Alethea is a Greek word, uh meaning right. truth and undisclosedness. And there's mm. like a, a sort of a, a longer um definition for it. But as far as I can tell um, from everyone that I've spoken to, that is the proper pronunciation, Aletheia.
2: (laughs) Awesome, man. So how does Aletheia work in a a nutshell?
4: So the way that Aletheia works, basically, we are trying to build a platform that you can upload academic papers to, Uh uh, you can download academic papers from, um, and it's run in a completely decentralized manner. So basically, we're trying to give you a platform that you can um, access science for free and you can publish science for free
2: wow that's 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 awesome man so so what what inspired you to get started with this i mean like what, what problems did you see in the area
4: so the big thing that inspired me was uh the documentary the internet's own boy the story mm-hmm. of aaron schwartz you'll hear this particular documentary thrown around quite a bit in um, academic circles particularly in academic publishing right. so basically uh, I, I sat down one day as I was trying to move into the security space, I had sort of a, a passing understanding of like blockchain and cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. uh, more in the sense that cryptocurrencies were um, used um, particularly like for ransomware and um, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, it wasn't particularly on sort of the use cases of blockchain, yeah. but I had I had a bit of an understanding. I had, people had told me sort of these are things that... um where like people are looking to apply blockchain to. So I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting, but Mm. it really wasn't sort of something that was front and center in my mind. And I sat down to watch this documentary one day and I had no preconceived notions of what I was going to be watching. It was like, well, (laughs) I have a vague idea of who Aaron Schwartz is. Um, Like I um, remember the Pippa and Soper campaigns Mm. um, that were basically campaigns that he helped run over in the U S that were Mm. against particular legislation that was to do with piracy of memory. Mm. And so I had a vague idea that that's kind of like he was working in like the like activist space but didn't really know much about him. And I was mm. like, well, I'll watch the documentary. One, I'll learn sort of more about sort of who he is um, yeah. and maybe pick up something as far as um, technical information for like moving into security. So it was just a general mm. sort of like mm. upskilling. I sat down and watched the documentary and I came away and I was, I was actually quite cross and angry. Um, basically, mm. what the documentary covers is it runs through Aaron's life um, and it sort of talks about um, the different things he participated in. Um, so, for those who don't know who Aaron Schwartz is, um, he was a bit of a child prodigy. He contributed to RSS, like the actual mm. like, actual pioneering of the protocol. was one of the co-founders of Reddit, mm. a little website that some people may be familiar with. <laughs> Pioneered Creative Commons. I mean... Creative mm. Commons touches pretty much everything mm. that people that are involved in software in some way, shape, or form use on a day-to-day basis. So again, kind of a, like not an inconsequential thing. <laughs> so like, he did all these like, these really sort of big things, um, particularly at a very young age. And mm. he came across these problems in academic publishing when he was studying. And basically what he found was people are basically trying to communicate science to the world so that people can use it Mm. it's paid for by taxpayers generally so the grants that people um, are using to actually like complete their studies usually come from um, the government therefore through taxpayer money or from the university itself and therefore through student tuition Mm. Um, and so they're trying to get this this, this research out, and it, it's sitting behind paywalls. So the way that the academic publishing system is set up, largely, is that you have these very large publishers that say, well, you have to publish through us because. If you don't, your work will not be considered of any value in the field, really. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're anyone who's anyone in a, in a particular academic field, you must publish in particular journals. And these journals know that. They know that they hold a virtual monopoly on the system, and so they basically just put big paywalls around everything and say, okay, well, you have to come through us. We take the copyright for it because that's the deal. Um, and then we'll put it <laughs> in people, and then anyone else that wants to access it can pay us, like – ridiculous amounts like it can be, you can be talking about $5 per article but you can be talking up to $60 per article wow. like, like ridiculous sums of money yeah, um, and at the end of the day we've already paid for it because we paid through, it, through our taxes so okay. why are we paying twice and I mean you think about what we're missing out when this information is sitting mm-hmm. behind a table mm-hmm. I mean the breakthroughs that we don't make because particular people don't get access to research yeah. um, it's it's quite obscene when you think about it, really, in those terms. Wow.
2: Because, um, yeah, I, I saw that you'd, you in, in your um, Aletheia 101 post that you put on LinkedIn, I, I saw that you mentioned something like Harvard spent, wasn't it $3.75 million a year yeah. paying these uh, publishing companies?
4: Yep. It's crazy. So, um, it was close to $4 million. It wasn't quite $4 million, but it was not far off at all. Um, and so basically it was the library of the university. So generally um, the university, um, they basically segmented up and it's normally the libraries that bear the brunt of these costs. Wow. Um, and they also have had these independent cost centres. So basically the library had to pay nearly $4 million a year <laughs> in subscriptions and they basically said, look, this is not sustainable. The library cannot afford this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have to cut back on the journals that we offer. Um, And when you think about that, it's like, okay, so I'm paying tuition to Harvard, like one of the most prestigious educational institutions in the world, and I don't have access to all the information that's out there. Like really, there's no place you can go where you have 100% access because there's just so many different journals that you have to subscribe to and it costs so much money when you put it all together. Um, It's just not economically feasible. Like a university can't do it. And if a university can't do it in the West, I mean, you think about universities all yeah. across the world. When um, you think about the level of education that people then get because they just don't have access to stuff, um, wow.
2: it's not good. Wow. And with Aaron Schwartz, didn't he uh, sort of – wasn't it that he took copies of, uh, of different journals and stuff? And it, didn't, didn't he stick them online and, and get sort of thrown around legally and, and all sorts for that?
4: Yeah, so basically what ended up happening is um, he set up fake accounts and uh, he had a laptop that was basically just running um, in the basement of one of the buildings at the university. And he wrote a program that just recursively dived into these databases um, that he had (laughs) access to because he was using a student login because the student, they were paying for the um, subscription through basically being a a student at the university. Mm. And so this program was recursively grabbing all the documents, just putting on the laptop (laughs) He didn't actually post anything online, so that was sort of one of the, the big things. Like He was grabbing all of this documentation yeah.
2: Um,
4: and then the university found the laptop and rather than just sort of like shut the account and do anything with it, they let it run and basically um, put uh, a – I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they put a camera in the room so they could record him coming to actually um, update the laptop. Oof. They then arrested him for a number of – I believe the first one was copyright infringement. Don't quote me on that. Right, right. Um, no, it's fine. And then <laughs> the, the legal case basically goes from there. One of the charges that he that did end up being laid against him was the Computer Abuse and Fraud Act, um, right. which is a which carries felony yes. um, penalties in the U.S. So, like these really really um, nasty charges were laid against him, and at the end of the day, all he did was download these papers. He didn't actually put them anywhere there was debate around what was his intention in the end we we don't actually know what his intention was because before the case was actually finished he committed suicide
2: wow yeah and this is a guy who drove like you know creative commons and rs i mean RS. yeah that's just wild
4: and it makes you think he, he did all this like like i'm 30 um he did all this um before he hit my age like he he died like much much younger than me wow. so he, he did all of that in such a short space of time and he gave us things that like will carry on mm. for, for years and years to come as far as like things like creative commons and you think about what else he could have done with his life if um, he hadn't had the book thrown at him for really true. not not really doing a hell of a lot at all um, yeah man
2: wow so like uh, so what you're saying like uh, this is all centralized in these publishing houses at the moment so how does decentralization sort of with, uh, through Alethea, how does that solve the, solve the problem?
4: So, what we're looking at doing, um, basically, you have a platform that you can publish to, nice and open source, so anyone can contribute. So, the idea is, we have IPFS, um, which is the actual storage of the document. So, basically, you would download the Alethea client. You can upload a document. The document itself is stored in IPFS. Um, we take a hash of that document, right. so we can say that yes, with certainty it goes back to the right document. Right, yeah. We can also do version control of the document that then lets us okay. do the peer review process, which is nice. Okay. And basically that hash is then stored um, on Ethereum. So that hash is not going anywhere. Yeah. It's on the blockchain. Um, we have the document stored in IPFS. Um, basically you would use um Alethea to run a search um, for whatever particular things you're looking for, hmm. returns the hash, which then returns the document, um, You've then got access to it, so you didn't have to pay for a. You didn't have to go through a paywall to get it. Um, basically, um, IPFS is a decentralized storage platform. So basically, that document is stored across multiple different machines mm-hmm. across the world. As far as what Alethe is contributing to the ideas of people actually having access to scientific information, it's worth calling out that the open access movement, as far as people. The publishing work for free, it does already exist, so it's not like Aletheia is sort of like pioneering this, Mm -hmm. but what we are doing as far as we're aware is we're the only decentralized version in um, in open access. So, on our website, we currently have a piece that sort of talks about, okay, um, the existing open access movement does all these particular things, aletheia supports them we don't feel it's a zero-sum game as far as we're Mm -hmm. we're, we don't feel that we're competing with other open access projects the idea is just getting science to the people um and if people do that in a different way we don't care as long as it gets done so Mm -hmm. we support them Mm we 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 don't see ourselves as competitors to them like we are just contributing to an ecosystem Mm -hmm. um but we're a decentralized part of that ecosystem which is the piece that's currently missing Mm -hmm. um which is why we feel it's so important as far as getting this built.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: So, basically, we are just trying to build a platform that people don't control, that anyone can submit to. And there's, when I say don't control, there's been a lot of effort that's been put into that. So, mm-hmm. we've deliberately made it open source. So, it's not a proprietary platform. Um, okay. That's sort of step one. So, it's not owned by... Um, a, a company that's Mm. locking up source code. The source code's open. Anyone can have a look at it. Anyone can contribute to it if they want. Um, We've deliberately licensed it under, so currently we're using Creative Commons, Attribution Sharealike for our Mm -hmm. um, text documents, and we're using the GNU General Public License for the actual code itself. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do with these particular licenses is say that, okay, if you want to take our source code, go for it. It's open source. That's the entire point of it. But you must attribute and you must keep whatever you derive from our code open as well. Mm-hmm. So we're deliberately locking this code base into the public domain such that it cannot be locked up and then owned by a corporation. Wow. Um, we're deliberately storing the documents in IPFS um, because it's decentralized, it's not controlled by anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, the hashes are going on Ethereum so that one, it's not controlled by anyone, two, relatively secure um we haven't really seen a, a large attack against ethereum that's um sort of wiped information of in blocks or anything like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm we're looking to run Aletheia as a DAO, so a decentralized yeah. autonomous organization that removes our key person risk. So the idea is basically through consensus, um, if there's anything that needs to happen on the platform, let's say um, something copyright, something under copyright gets put up mm. um, and we get a takedown order, which is possible. We don't want to, the, the entire point of this is not to be in a legal operation. We are trying mm. to, Obviously, stay within the law such that um, we do not suffer lawsuits. Mm-hmm. That's obviously providing um, a service that is good and required for people. Mm-hmm. But basically, we, we get a, a takedown notice. Everyone in the community can look at that notice. Um, they can have a look at the document that it's disputing. They can make a call as to whether that takedown notice is legitimate or not, because it's not outside the possibility that you could just receive takedown notices from people just trying to see if they can get you to take mm-hmm. stuff down, even though they don't need- copyright so we can all have a look at that um the community can then vote on hey should this document be taken down or not the community then votes based on that vote the software executes so it's not sort of controlled um by any sort of central like group of people or even one person um So really, even once the actual platform is built and it's at that point, um, if I was to step away from the project or our our lead dev um, area was to step away or any other sort of like key volunteer, Mm -hmm. um, it shouldn't matter because the platform is running off consensus. Mm. Um, So really every single design decision we put into this from trying to get away from centralized servers to our licensing agreements, like everything has been to make this open decentralized It's not controlled by anyone and really we're hoping if we've done it right it shouldn't ever be controlled by anyone in the future either but because of the way we have set it up
2: awesome that is so cool man like it's such a mammoth challenge that you 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 guys set yourselves how how many of you you, uh, are working on the project
4: There's a few of us at the moment. So basically, I handle anything that is not strictly um, like programming and code related. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a developer um, in Aero Pinkman, very talented developer who's done a large amount of the code base. Um, We have um, a person by the name of Lisa who's been helping us out with social media. Um, We have a couple of other different volunteers that have done various bits and pieces. And we have a Slack channel for anyone that wants to um, sort of Chat to the volunteers or even be a part of themselves, and um, but the idea is being an open source project. People contribute what they want when they want, and then they can they're free to step away from the project, come mm-hmm. back at a later date. It's not like they've got sort of say, allocated pieces mm-hmm. of work. Mm-hmm. So we have quite a few volunteers, mm-hmm. but I would but I wouldn't say that we have a lot of sort of regular contributors that have sort of stuck around for a long period of time hopefully as sort of things progress some of the new people that we've had come on recently I'm hoping that they will stay on longer and sort of widen their the contributions that they've made Mm. which would be great at the moment it has sort of been sitting between myself Eero, and Lisa to sort of handle like everything that's not code code and then um, sort of the social media um, aspect of it itself
2: Wow, amazing, man. So, so um, I mean, how long have you guys been been working on it for?
4: So, I sat down and watched um, the doco on Aaron Schwartz. I believe it was late 2015. Right. And that's sort of after, the docu- after watching the documentary, I sort of sketched out. I'm like, okay, I know a bit about blockchain. I believe we can run a decentralized system that could actually help the publishing ecosystem. Mm. So, I penned my notes um, and basically... So that was late 2015, early 2016. I said to Eru, um, I said, Look, I've got these nodes. I think this is a viable solution based on what I know about blockchain. Can you vet it for me and tell me if this works? So he looked <laughs> at it and he said, Yeah, it works. Wow. And I said, Okay. I said, I will do all the organization as far as the volunteer coordination, talking to lawyers, um, getting the foundation set up to support it, um, doing this kind of stuff as far as like speaking to like podcasts, writing blogs. I said, I'll do all that side of it. Yeah. You code it. <laughs> and and we, and we just, we just do that and, and we see where it goes. Um, right. And so that was 2016. And we're now and coming towards the end of 2017. Wow. Um, and we have a working prototype. Um, so currently you can go to our, our GitHub repository. You can get it working, but it's very bare bones. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hoping early next year, we'll have sort of a prototype as far as it has all the features, as far as, you can upload a document. You can download a document. So the basic premise of decentralized document storage um, mm-hmm. for academic research works. And then we move forward as far as getting the peer review um, functionality built in. And we're hoping that should be towards the end of next year.
2: Wow. That's awesome, man. I mean, like, as I said, I mean I said earlier, this is a huge sort of chat, like huge task you got ahead. But um, what were some of the big challenges you sort of faced so far when you've been designing and building Alethea?
4: So I guess a lot of them is sort of around what can we do with blockchain and particularly Ethereum. Um, there's been sort of like waiting for Swarm. Like these, we, there's been so many different things, um, particularly with Ethereum, that's sort of on the horizon as far as like right, different functionality yeah. coming in. Mm-hmm. And then all we sort of get in the community is like, oh, like there's plans that we're going to be doing this thing, and it's like right. great when is it coming (laughs) basically like um the scaling has been a huge issue so Mm -hmm. we've been trying to basically create a platform that you can upload and download to for free um but using ethereum is not free so that's been fun as far as working at how we do it so we've tried can we do side chains um so with plasma um that was a white paper that came out a little while ago that proposed um different ways of doing side chains Mm -hmm which in theory should bring the costs right down that we running off donations should be able to fund people and right. then sort of uploading information to um, the Ethereum blockchain. Um, we looked at running a testnet, but then when you run into issues where it's, it doesn't sort of have the same weight as the as the main net, you're not sort of um, leveraging a lot of that security of consensus. Right. So looking at what you can and can't do with blockchain has been the big one. I guess sort of the huge hurdle that we hit initially was in my naive little mind i was like we're going to store documents on 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 ethereum and it's like it's like no you, you're obviously not because the computation is just ridiculous like wow. there's no way that that's going to work
2: which is why we've gone with ipfs right um, right right so um so it's just, so uh, so it's just the hashes that are being stored sort of stored or run across the ethereum sort of network is messages or something
4: at the moment we're just doing the hashes we may be doing other bits and pieces but it's yeah. strictly going to be um, Small amounts of text for now, um, yeah. until um, Ethereum scales to yeah. something more efficient that we could store a little bit more to it. Um, we'd love to do documents at some point because that would really give us um, a lot of the security and the decentralization we're after. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, IPFS does a lot of what we need anyway. So, um, yeah. um, and it's, that's free to use. So,
2: awesome. Well, speaking of IPFS, was, was that was that tricky to set up and sort of get plugged in?
4: So. To- To my understanding, not terribly, but I caveat that with I didn't write the code base. (laughs) Um, We've been able to get it running. I know there's been some hiccups. Uh, I've been across sort of the development process between myself, Aero, and a couple of the different people that have um, contributed bits and pieces. There's been, you can even just have a look at the issues on on a GitHub repo where people have like, okay, we've installed it. These are the issues we're having someone will call a volunteer will come along um see if we can get it fixed so it's been a process to get it to a point where it's stable but it wasn't Mm. too difficult like we've managed to get there in the end
2: wow that's really cool and and, um and and you mentioned earlier like running it through a decentralized autonomous organization how how will that work
4: so basically the idea is we're trying to write the code such that any decision that the organization would need to make um, Mm. can be made by the community. So, the idea is, as I said before, with um, takedown notices, everyone can vote on it. If people want to suggest a feature, so you could suggest a feature. So, basically, the idea is you would download the client, you would have a button that would physically say, suggest a feature. So, you click on it type out whatever your feature is, that then gets pushed out to all the other users' clients. Okay. They can have a look at it. They can sort of debate it and say whether they think it's a good idea or not or sort of refine it and add to it. Mm-hmm. Then when it comes to its final form, it goes to a vote. So do all the Alethe users agree this is a good feature, yes or no? Um if that vote passes that feature would then be taken off to a volunteer that has marked or even a user that's mm-hmm. marked that hey I have particular skills as far as like maybe a particular programming language that's required yeah so that those ideas would be included in the actual feature request itself. So the actual work can be then taken off to either like a volunteer as a user. They agree whether they want to do the work or not. If they agree to do the work, they can then basically go away, and write the feature. Once they're done, they can then submit that code. That code's then vetted by the community. The mm-hmm. community looks at it and says, do we like this, yes or no? If that vote passes, the code is then merged into the code base. And really the, there was no sort of overarching management or or anything like that that was basically people coming to consensus as far as as a group we decide do we want to do this yes or no Hmm. okay we can have a look at the work was the work done to a particular standard does it do what we need it to do yes we we choose to implement it and yeah it runs like that i mean that is really that's the notion of a dao.
2: Wow, that's a huge amount of stuff sort of building. I mean, it's I mean it's brilliant. You know, you propose an idea, you suggest it, you can sort of plugging all those bits in. People getting involved—that's really cool. Like, have you? Have you? Did you find any sort of challenges there? Have you got any sort of tips for people who, who, who are thinking about sort of setting up a, a decentralized autonomous organization?
4: I guess the big thing I would say is either use our code base or oh. come and help us build it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, currently we've seen like the famous, like the actual DAO um, that was basically a hedge fund run by consensus. So that was very much a, a fintech implementation as far as people put in money, um, the group chooses where the money is invested, and then the returns on the investment are then um, distributed out to um, the people that actually um, putting the money in the first place. Right. So that was the DAO, which then went bust when it was hacked, when there was found to be a flaw in one of their smart contracts. Nice. And a lot of their money was taken. Um, but, so basically, we haven't really seen a lot of examples of DAOs since then. We've only really sort of had that that one. So what we're trying to do is we are trying to write an open source code base yeah. for DAOs. Ours is like, so is currently aimed at academic publishing, but the idea is is open source, you could take what we've written, you could change a couple of different features and be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm now writing a DAO to run, let's like as a random example, so like a community group. Wow. Um, and then like the community group would then use this software as a framework to basically mediate their decision-making um, and decide on particular processes and um, particular actions to take. Wow. But these, these things don't really exist yet. So we believe they do work because we have seen the actual DAO itself, um, but there's sort of nothing you could sort of use out there right now today um, that that is really considered to be a DAO. So we're trying to build something that is basically a code base that anyone can use. We're still not there yet, and we do need help.
2: Yeah, wow. Well, yeah, if you're listening and if you're a developer, I mean, that sounds – it sounds like there are such useful tools here. So check that out on uh, – I think you can find that on github.com slash hyphen foundation uh, You can explore uh, all the code base there. That's awesome, man, because that's going to be so useful because I'm sure someone who's thinking about setting up a DAO, like a DAO, they're, they're just going to be like, where do I start? There must be so – you would almost put like, yeah, why start from scratch? Take a look at the code that's here. That's awesome, man. You've mentioned some bits from the roadmap before, but what um, how are you how are you hoping that that um that it will develop in the future and and grow with with the people joining in?
4: So currently we have a very bare bones prototype. We're trying to get to what we're calling onlyia 1.0, um, which is basically a proof of concept. so that would be a client so that would be running on whether that be Linux, Mac Windows that you could then upload a document to, download a document from, it still has all the decentralized properties um, that we want it to have. That's sort of our proof of concept to say that, hey, decentralized storage documents does work. We, we can actually do this. Um, so that's 1.0. Um, Aletheia 2.0 would be um, actually running the different features such as peer review. Mm -hmm. So for us to really sort of be what we need to be in the academic publishing space, there are particular things that we need to do and peer review is one of them. Um, Mm -hmm. You can't really be taken seriously um, as be it an academic journal or or even just software that people are using um, if you can't sort of facilitate a peer review. So once we get that done um, and then maybe couple of other different features like including bits like um, orchid which is a particular identifier um, used quite prevalently in, in um, academia okay. once we have all that stuff done that's aletheia 2.0 um, and that's when we can say that we really have our product done like this is mm. it is what it what it needs to be wow. the dow elements as far as then being able to basically have a volunteer base that handles all the bugs that come through, um, all the feature requests, all the decisions need to be made around, like, takedown, um, just just voting on content. Um, so we need to vet the content coming in um, mm. because people may try to publish trash science. Mm. And... Currently, like there is an ed- editorial board that would do that function for um, academic journals themselves. Mm-hmm. So we need to have a function for Alithia. I don't want to have an editorial board because mm-hmm. that leads you open to bias and like single points of failure and that. I want that to be done by consensus. So that's one of the other DAO one of the other elements. So that's Alithia three um, So by that point, we're talking probably twenty nineteen um, around there. Wow. Um, we get to that point, then really it's down to the community as far as what they want, because the mm-hmm. community now has the actual ability um, to propose whatever they want to do as far as like, building different things into the platform and, and that kind of stuff. So that's when it then goes from there. But that's the roadmap to get to that point.
2: That's awesome man that, that, that's that's so cool I mean just seeing exactly like how i mean from when I was at university having to you know use all of those all the academic journals and just seeing how they sort of acted and as soon as you leave uni you don't have your uni password and you're like you got it's it's such a like I'm so glad that you you're looking at looking at this problem man because it's it's so important. I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens, man. Like, yeah, thanks, thank, thank you to you and the whole, the whole, the whole team for for building it, man. Like, it's it's something that we need. And like, yeah, how can I, how can our listeners find out more or or get involved?
4: So, if people want to get involved, basically, you can have a look at our website. So, Aletheia Foundation.io. That is just sort of the landing page, um, which we probably do need help with sprucing up. So if anyone is great on web development, please um, feel free to hit us up. Um, so the GitHub repo itself, um, which has basically all of the onboarding documentation for volunteers. Um, so basically the readme for the actual project itself, mm-hmm. um, contributor guidelines, code of conduct, all that kind of stuff. So that's github.com slash aletheia-foundation. Um, if you want to um, hit us up on Twitter, so we're at Alethea underscore F. Um, yeah, awesome. So, yeah, people can please feel free to come along.
2: And um, w- where can our listeners find out more about you and, and uh, fo- follow your activities? Um, so
4: if you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, so I'm at SciPath, So that's C-Y-P-A-T-H. Um, and you can search for Cade Morton on LinkedIn um, if you really wanted to have a chat with me.
1: <laughs>
2: awesome. Well, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, th- thanks for taking the time, man. I like, really, really appreciate it. Like, it's, it's so exciting to see this, the stuff that you're building. And yeah, man, I'm definitely keeping an eye on it. And um, yeah, man, this is it's super cool. So yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for joining, man. No, thank you so much.
1: That's pretty much it for us here at the FOMO Show. If you know someone who might enjoy this, uh, please feel free to share it with your friends. You can find us at FOMO.show. Yeah, so you can jump on our
2: Slack, which is our uh, uh, instant messaging web platform thing. If you've got any questions, want to chat with some other people who are into crypto, jump on FOMO.show slash Slack.
1: You can also uh, tweet at us or follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show.
2: We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the FOMO show
1: you can also find us on YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate your company if you like our show please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or alternatively you can now subscribe on YouTube I'm Matt and I'm Joe and as always remember no FOMO
3: It is me, Blockfolio.
2: Your crypto has gone up. Oh, yes. IOTA is up 30%. 30%? 30%. Wow. <laughs> there is too much butter on those. No, 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 Mr. Fulti. It is, uh, it's a uh, uno, dos, tres. I suppose you would, wouldn't you, Fulti? It's back in the war.
1: It's back in my day. <laughs> Cause ah. I'm just like, who are you? It's nonsense. Who are like you, oh, some right?
2: bloke from the European Central Bank. Right, okay. Alleged so you worked So he probably worked in debt capital markets. Yeah, and yeah. then and then he worked for JP Morgan. And now he's a European Central Bank advisor and he knows exactly how monetary policy would work. And it's like shut up, bro. Yeah. Like you are the past. This is the future.
1: That's right. Sit down. What have you? Well, I mean, what have they done for monetary policies? They, yeah, okay. they oh, bankrupt bankrupted in Greece. Interest rates
2: are like at the lowest they've ever been. That's
1: fantastic. This is Big Brother. <laughs> it's time for your two minutes of hate.
2: Fiat. 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 <laughs> You, you literally pointed at me i froze mum's spaghetti it's
0: mate.
2: <laughs> spaghetti i was nervous all right i was nervous do you re- like if the people like if you're listening to the podcast and you think oh these podcasts are way too long or way too short or way too whatever let us know
1: please let us know yeah because uh last thing you need because we that? can talk for hours and, oh. hours and hours and hours and hours and hours so true
2: Mm. We, next time we'll release a four-hour recording of the FOMO show.
1: <laughs> It'll be in two parts: one with whiskey, <laughs> <laughs>
0: one without.
2: Yeah, I, I, can I mm. can I speak to Champ, please? <laughs> can I can I can I speak to Champ? <laughs> Champ, oh, no, like Champ, who's Champ? Well, that's what we're going to find out next time on WWE.
0: <laughs> oh yes, well. Here we are, back in the (laughs) the FOMO show.